Hey, everybody. So we recorded this black phone review about a year ago. So we may say things that are outdated or have changed. Uh, so I hope you excuse us for that. But we hope you still enjoy the podcast on our review of the black phone. Cut and cut. Cut it there. Cut, 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 cut. Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Manny. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. Happy 2022, y'all. Yay. Actually, we're recording this October 2021. Because we're doing another review of a movie that has yet to be released. But we'll be publishing it the week it comes out, which is February 4th. So we're speaking to you from the past, although it's the future. (laughs) This is another one of the movies that we saw premiere at Beyond Fest. So the first one was Halloween Kills, which we saw. And then a few weeks ago, we saw the premiere of this one. It was the West Coast premiere because I think New York had already premiered it. And it's going to be The Black Phone. For those of you who don't know about The Black Phone, it's Scott Derrickson directed it. And it was written by him and Robert Cargill, who you might recognize as the duo that brought us Sinister, which is one of my favorite horror movies in the last decade, probably. I think that was the first one as a duo that they did, which is a pretty awesome first feature, as you'll find out or you already know. And they also did, they worked on Doctor Strange together. And from there, this is, this is their third one, The Black Phone. Um, Scott Derrickson also did The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is another one of my favorites. It's a really good uh, exorcism movie. And then after that, he did The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I never saw, but it seemed like it kind of bombed. But from there is when <clears throat> they did Sinister, and that kind of brought his career back up. And then he did Doctor Strange, and now The Black Phone. This is my first experience watching a Derrickson Carhill movie. I feel like it's a cool collaboration because they've known each other since like 20 for 20 years or something like that. And um, I think they complement each other really well. Just their sensibilities. And what was cool about this screening, you know, when you go to Beyond Fest screenings, I know we've talked about it tons of times, but it's Beyond Fest events are some of my favorite to go to because you always have like fun little extra things that they kind of throw in like for Halloween kills Jamie Lee Curtis showed up they always throw out a bunch of freebies uh they'll have Q&A's so for example for this one they had a Q&A with Scott Derrickson and Cargill moderated by none other than Mike Flanagan who did Midnight Mass Haunting of Hill House Blind Manor Dr. Sleep Ouija Origins of Evil I could go on forever but it was really great to see all three of them actually before we get into our review of this film We split up these into half spoiler reviews and half non-spoiler reviews. So the first half is usually a non-spoiler review. And then we'll do an audio cue, like for Halloween Kills, we had some stabby sounds. And then for when we did old, it was like wave sounds, I think. So I don't know what we're going to do this time. Have you thought of anything? You do a telephone ringing. Yes. Perfect. There you go. Done. Done. So we'll do a telephone ringing sound. We'll warn you guys just in the nick of time so you can turn it off and then watch the movie and then come back and listen to the spoilers. So here we go. 
So let's begin with the spoiler-free part of uh, the Black Phone. So like Andrew said, this film was directed by Scott Derrickson, starring Ethan Hawke as The Grabber, Jeremy Davies as Mr. Shaw, Madeline McGraw as Gwen Shaw, Mason Thames as Finney Shaw, and then the hilarious James Ransone as Max. What was your first exposure to this movie? Was it me telling you about it? Yeah, it was <laughs> you. No, actually, I think I saw the poster. Okay. Which was like the silhouette of Ethan Hawke, right? It's like his face with the mask. I thought that's it was him in the doorway. That was one of the first like stills that came out. Okay. Like the production so stills. So that still, I think, is the first thing that I saw. Okay. Because you couldn't see that he was wearing a mask at that point. It was just him like in yeah. a door and he was like backlit. Yeah. And you couldn't really tell what he was wearing. Mm-hmm. But I think that was like my first exposure. And since we saw the film before the trailer had even been released, because it was just released a few days ago, I really had no idea like what to expect. So obviously to me, it was just more like Ethan Hawke is a bad guy. He's doing some bad things. And that's pretty much it. And like I said before, this is like my first exposure to a Derrickson film. So obviously I knew it was going to be scary and ominous and whatever, but I I'd, I'd had zero expectation. I don't remember what exactly it was. I just remember because I follow Scott Derrickson and I follow Cargill on Twitter. And I think it was Cargill saying something about how like their next project was like Ethan Hawke as a bad guy or like something like that. And I was just like, oh, shit, that sounds cool. And then. So they announced Ethan Hawke was going to be the villain. They announced James Ransone was going to be in it, who I love from the Sinister movies. I think he's great. So I was really happy to see him in this movie, even though he's in it for like a really small amount of the movie, but he makes such an impression in the movie. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, cool. And then I kind of forgot about it because they announced it a while ago. And then, like you said, when those production stills came out, I was kind of just like, oh, that's right. That movie's coming out. And then we saw the poster and I just kind of got more and more excited about it. And like you said, we went into it not knowing anything really about it. Like, I don't even think I looked up synopsis or anything like that. And we just didn't see the trailer. And I kind of think that's the best way to go into it. Um, Because like you said, the trailer just came out and a lot of the movie is in the trailer. We'll kind of go into detail as to what in the spoiler part of the podcast. But I would avoid the trailer if you can. It really focuses too much on some of the key moments and key scares, if you want to call them that, of the film. And I think we talked about this during for Hollywood Kills that the trailers tend to nowadays spoil a lot of the movie and show you most of what you're about to see before you even sit in a theater or watch it at home. Especially for horror movies, which a lot of it is like you need to see it in the theater, like especially with big scares. Or with Halloween kills, big kills and stuff like that. But when you see like a lot of it in the trailer, you're just kind of like, well, I guess. (laughs) So knowing Scott Derrickson films, what were your impressions leaving the theater? Did this one live up to his body of work or not so much? It did. I really enjoy the look of the movie. And it kind of goes hand in hand with Sinister. Like they're both kind of like gritty looking. Granted, Sinister takes place in present day, whereas the black one takes place in like the, the 70s, late 70s yeah. which is totally my thing. I love the 70s. So I was automatically like down with that. Like the soundtrack's really good at what everyone's wearing is really cool. And just kind of the ambiance of like 
kids going missing in like a small town and stuff like that. I thought that was really, really cool. I wouldn't necessarily call it a horror movie, though. I would call it more of like a thriller, you know, or something like that. There are like horrific elements to it. But as far as like horror, I would I wouldn't put it in the same category as like Sinister. because Sinister is like a horror movie, although it is kind of like a murder mystery thriller, too. But it's more horror than the black phone. I really enjoyed it. Um, like you were saying, I expected it to be a horror movie, like a straight literal horror movie. And it wasn't, it was more thriller suspense. You know, a lot of the horror is really psychological and trauma based. And we'll get into the details of that as we get into the spoiler part. Um, but it really captured not only this late seventies, but the fact that kids going missing used to be a big thing in this country. And even like through the 80s and 90s. And I remember there was, it felt like an epidemic of every summer there'd be this like little boy, little girl. And it was like a manhunt and living in Southern California. I remember tons of cases where, you know, kids would go missing and some of them were found. Some of them, you know, it was a complete mystery to who did it or, or where they, where they ended up. But that part of me really took me back to that, that era of, like I said, when like, kids were missing. They captured that era really well with not only the wardrobe, but the production design. Um, and they made it seem like, you know, that it wasn't fabricated. Like one of my, I like stranger things. I'm a fan of stranger things, but some of the eighties nostalgia feels very fabricated mm -hmm. and very like, you know, kind of neon and very bright colors like and mall. like I remember the 80s yeah. <laughs> not all of that was like super in your face like primary colors yeah and the, the late 70s here even though I didn't live through them they look more um lived in you know it doesn't look very pristine like some 80s uh, movies that have been done now nowadays Cargill mentioned it in the it was either him or Scott Derrickson that were mentioning it in the q and is that is that's exactly what they were saying is what you're saying is that a lot of times when a movie portrays like the 80s or the 90s or 70s, it's like it's like the kitschy version of that era, exactly. like the party city version, basically. And what he was saying is that, you know, people in the 70s still had couches from the 60s and like shit like that because couches last a long time or like the TV set is still an older one. And so I think that lends a lot to the how genuine it feels and how, like you said, lived in it feels it feels more like you're in that era as opposed to like a nostalgic version of that era. And I think it helps too that they lived in that era. They were kids in, you know, the seventies. And so they picked up on things that people that necessarily didn't live in the eighties or nineties um, would pick up on. And so I think that also added to, to the look and feel of the film. And even though the movie was shot digitally, um, there are moments in the film that, um, are kind of like flashbacks a little bit that look that was shooting like VHS -y. but like eight millimeter, yeah, 60 millimeter, yeah. really grainy kind of like home, uh, like your old eight millimeter home movie camera yeah. to show some of the narrative of the movie. Yeah. And that's where you get a lot of like, if you see the movie and you're not aware that it's the folks that did sinister, you're going to be like, Oh, this is like sinister. Cause it looks just like, like they have a lot of um, in Sinister, they have like the reel of films that Ethan Hawke goes through and it looks just like that like grainy kind of Super 8 film that's in the black phone. The casting of this movie I thought was spot on minus one character. And I have 
maybe a swap that potentially may work better. But mm. I thought the kids were casted brilliantly. Um, Madeline and Mason, the two leads, if you want to call them that. Um, I thought they were casted perfectly. They complement complimented each other really well. They play brother and sister and are the kids of Jeremy Davis's character. Mason Thames really carries the movie. And I feel like that's a lot of pressure to put on, you know, what, how old is he? Like nine, 10 years old? Probably like 12. <laughs> okay. It's hard to find really great kid actors. I know like people must think that like Haley Joe Osmond's like grown trees or whatever. Anytime there's a really great, you know, kid actor performance, I think it's, it's kind of a revelation and I could see both of them like working for years and, and making films. Yeah, same. I was <clears throat> really surprised by it, especially by um, Madeline, who plays Gwen. She was really, really great. And I think I read that she has like a Disney show kind yeah, of thing. She's, she's like a, a Disney, Disney actress, mm -hmm. which is crazy because I feel like actors that are on Disney shows are taught to kind of overact because that's how the shows are. Like the comedy is very like overacty. And so just to see such a genuine performance from her in this movie, like genuinely really, really good. There's especially one scene that we'll talk about later that they'd mentioned in the Q&A where I was just like, damn, this girl's like really good in this movie. So let's get to the elephant into the room. What did you think of Ethan Hawke as the bad guy? I really liked it because there are moments in it. That's kind of what I was looking forward to the most is because you don't see Ethan Hawke as a villain. But I kind of forget how like stocky Ethan Hawke is. Like I, I had always just remembered him as like, Troy in reality, but then he's like skinny. But in this movie, he's like beefed up and he's like gigantic. I'm not spoiling by saying this part, but in the trailer, there's a scene where he's like sitting on a chair and he's like shirtless. And at one point he told Scott Derrickson because he had come off. I don't know what movie it was, but he basically told Derrickson, you know what? Like I'm in shape. I don't <laughs> mind taking my shirt off. You know, if you want to do something like that. I'm thinking it might have been training for like Moon Knight, maybe. Okay. With Oscar Isaac, because I know they were... They were doing them, I think, around the same. If it was during COVID, I think there was like maybe pre-production stuff happening at the same time. So that it might have been sense. that. That would make sense. But it was really Ethan Hawke's idea yeah. to do that whole scene where he's like sitting on and a chair. And it works because it's really creepy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have this scene like when you first meet the grabber. And it's in the trailer too. So I'm not really like spoiling unless you haven't seen the trailer. And it's just like it's Ethan Hawke. And like the way he's like laughing and everything, which like from a certain point of view is kind of creepy the way he does it. But it's also you want to trust him at the same time because it does sound kind of like just like a normal guy. Like playful. Just very playful. And Ethan Hawke has always kind of had that sort of like playfulness about him that can be really sinister in the movie, the, the way it's played. At least that's what I thought about it. There are moments that I really buy him as a as a bad guy. But one of the things that was brought up in the Q&A was that Ethan Hawke was hesitant to take the role because he had never really played that many bad guys before. And that's what I was thinking too. Is like, I can't remember a movie where he was like the bad guy. And if it is, it's like maybe like one or two films. But off the top of my head, I couldn't think of one. And, and so he was hesitant to do that. And... I don't know. His performance sometimes felt a little bit forced to me, especially when he is wearing the mask. And I feel like he kind of kind of went over the edge a little a few times. And so it felt to me a little forced. And sometimes I, I 
would start laughing because it was like, yeah, Ethan Hawke is playing like costume, <laughs> you know, with his kids and like trying to be this bad guy. Yeah. And, and I wasn't really buying it at times. Like, it's not terrible. Like, I'm not saying like I hate it or anything, but yeah, there were some times where I kind of didn't buy the story because I kept thinking it's Ethan, it's Hawk Ethan Hawke in a mask That's trying fair. to like sound yeah. creepy and scary. And Whereas I was like, it's Ethan Hawke in a mask. Oh my God, it's great. Yeah. Right. Like we mentioned earlier, a big thing that happens in the movie is about kids being kidnapped. And like Manny was saying earlier, it was a big thing when we were growing up, even when I was growing up still like early 90s, kids would go missing all the time. And it was like a very normal, not normal, but like it would happen all the time. But also I feel like kids now or at least people younger than me don't really know what it's like to kind of go out and hang out with your friends and like go bike riding and like fucking around at the park and like just doing outdoor thing without having your cell phone with you. And being alone because you have Madeline's character and Mason's character. They're always walking home by themselves and like going to a baseball game by themselves and not getting picked up by your parents where nowadays it's just like, you know, mom and dad is going to pick you up from the soccer game, going to take you to go get something to eat. Kids were more independent then. They didn't have to rely on their parents to do, you know, kind of the basic things and would be like, hey, here's five bucks. Go grab lunch we'll after do whatever. school, go yeah. do whatever, go to the arcade and do all that stuff. Where nowadays it's they're more reliant. And like you said, with cell phones, you know, you can keep track of your kids and all that. But yeah, it's it was a it's a bygone area for sure. Which I guess you could say is because so many kids were getting kidnapped and we had all of the Gacy's running around and everyone <laughs> kidnapping and yeah. murdering kids, unfortunately. And I think the advent of the internet too makes it a lot of easier to get the word out if someone does go missing. Mm -hmm. Because usually where do you see it first? Like on Twitter before it's even on the news. Yeah. And back in the day, the only source that you had is just like watching your local news or national flyers, news and flyers. And back in the day, you had to rely on, you know, these big, you know, companies and news networks to to get the word out. Watching the movie, I was kind of just like, wait, these kids are going missing and these kids are still walking to school. Like everyone's just like still walking to school. Whereas like <laughs> maybe it was just our mom that was crazy, but like. If that was happening when we were growing up, our mom would never let us go outside, like ever. She'd be like, okay, I'm taking you to the door of the school and bringing you back. So after all that kid uh, being kidnapped talk, <laughs> let's go ahead and get into the spoiler review part of the, uh, the black phone. So I'm going to insert phone ringing right here. This is your 10 second alert. Okay, that should be plenty of time. Now we begin our spoiler review on The Black Phone. Like we mentioned earlier, this film takes place in the late 70s in Colorado, a small suburb in Colorado. What did you think of the title sequence? Now, like I mentioned earlier as well, it's all like eight millimeter, like quick shots of kind of like the day in the life in that city. Mm hmm do you think that that was just that, a day in the life? Or do you think that's part of Gwen's dreams kind of manifesting? Oh, like that's a good point, a actually. Well, now that I, I hadn't thought about that, but since it is in that Super 8 kind of filming, I'm thinking it is because that's the only time we really see that kind of film in the movie is when it's her dreams or her premonitions or whatever she's having. 
So yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. But I like the um, the other part, not just the title sequence, but like the very beginning when you have the baseball game. And it kind of like reminds me a little bit of like the opening sequence of Scream where you have like the fake out of who the main person's going to be. Because you think it's like this kid who's like the all-star baseball player. And he's like, he's just finished a game. He's won the game. He's liked by everyone. Everyone's like waving at him. And then he's like riding his bike to, I can't remember what song it is, but it's like a very, it's uh, almost free like. Free ride? Was it free ride? I think it is free ride. Yeah. So he's riding his bike along in his little town. And then you see the black man pull up and then it kind of just fades to black. And then you realize that he's not the main character. And so I liked that as being kind of like the first instance that we see of the grabber. Because we don't really see him until like well into the movie after he's kidnapped like like two kids already. Probably after a third of the beginning of the movie. Which I really like because they did the same thing in Sinister where you don't see the bad guy until like way into the movie. Like everything you see before is just kind of like flashes. So similarly in this one, especially like when they kidnap the second kid, you just kind of see a blurry someone walking with the balloons and you don't really see his face. Even when Finn gets kidnapped, you still kind of don't see his face because it's obscured by like glasses and like makeup. But we don't really ever really, really see his face until like the end of the movie pretty much. And I remember I brought up the point that the first time you do see the grabber, Ethan Hawke's character, that he's wearing like glasses. Yeah. And you were like, no, he wasn't. Yeah. And because we were like, went back to the Ford, was he wearing a mask? Was it just his face? And yeah, he's like kind of, he has like he has white makeup. makeup on. I knew he was wearing makeup. And then he's, he's wearing sunglasses but I to kind of cover his eyes. He wasn't because you never glasses. see his eyes until the first shot of the mask. Yeah. You know, and that's how you could really see. I want to shift a little bit to talk about Finney's sister, Gwen. And this is another thing that I was kind of interested to see what you thought about. Early on when Finney goes missing, we find out that she has dreams that are kind of like premonitions or like dreams that are true or, you know, stuff like that. And we find out that her mom had these dreams too and that her mom's dead, but that Gwen also has them. Did you like that? that that was like the only explanation we got was just like, Oh, Gwen has these dreams and they just happen to be true. And her mom had them. And that was it. A hundred percent. Yes. I did too. Yeah. I love the, that you don't have to over explain it. Just like, I that's feel it. like that's it's what just, it is. that's what it is. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah. We don't need an origin story. We don't need to make three other movies based <laughs> on her mother yeah. and where she got her special powers. I don't even think and, we find out her mom's name. No. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, but I like how it's a catalyst to Jeremy Davies, who plays her dad, his alcoholism and his terrible life because, you know, he's an abusive dad. There's a scene where he's like, you know, has a belt and is like beating her in the kitchen and Finney's watching this and he's about to like, you know, he's pissed off and about to cry. And it's a really hard scene to watch. Um, but also... That was a thing that happened back in the day. And that was another thing that they brought up in the Q&A that, you know, back in the late 70s and even when I was growing up, parents would just hit their kids. Totally. I remember ridiculous reasons. uh, Our dad would always threaten. He never did, but he'd always be like, I'm going to grab the belt. I'm going to get the belt. And it never happened. But for some kids, it did happen. Jeremy Davies tells Gwen, 
to repeat like what what does he say this like, is like three my times? dreams are just dreams or something yeah. like that yeah and she basically tells her to repeat it three times and that i think that that was really hard difficult to like watch because like yeah she's just breaking down and is terrified of her dad and you know finney's in the background watching mm-hmm. that and he he just basically he's doing it out of love because he doesn't want her he doesn't want gwen to end up like her mom who committed suicide because her mom had seen a vision where she ended up killing herself. And so she did it. Yeah. And she couldn't like, she couldn't tell reality from her dreams. Exactly. So it is coming out of that trauma that he experienced, but obviously you shouldn't do that with your kids. Yeah. And in the Q and a, they mentioned that the actress Madeline and that scene, I think they said they only had to film it once or at least the end of it, which is great because that would have sucked to film more than once because she says like my dreams are just dreams. And she says it three times and the third time she gets mad and you can like see it in her face. And that was where I was like, damn, this like actress is really, really good because she just kind of did that without any direction. Every time you see Jeremy Davies in something, you're just like, that's that guy. But like, you can't really tell it's him. He just kind of like disappears into whatever role he's playing. He's like the the Judy Greer, but as a dude. Like with Judy, <laughs> Judy maybe Judy like Greer is more well known. But Judy Greer is like a great actress. But if you tell regular people like, Judy Greer. hey, do you know Judy Greer's in New Halloween Kills? It'd be like, who? It's not It's not Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. right? But he's that, he's kind of a character actor and he's always just great as a supporting actor. And, and he never's really gone his due. You know, he's really gone that credit. He's never been that like lead where you like recognize him for that. He's just always... In a supporting character, but he's always fucking great. I also I still want to get a cameo by Jeremy, a 50-minute Jeremy Davies cameo. Yeah, talk about that quickly. I found that out on Twitter. I don't even know how I found it out. Somewhere on Twitter where someone had bought a cameo for their friend and it was like 50 minutes. And then everyone was like, yeah, I got one too. It's 50 minutes. And he just like does all this like research and like asks you all these questions and like goes on these like, I tried to watch one of them, but I was like busy. So I couldn't watch the whole thing. And when I looked it up, he was like, his cameo was off, so you couldn't like request any cameos. But I was like, I need to sign up for subscription so that I can find out when he's doing them again. I would love to hear what he says. I feel like he's just a big ramble of just mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. The universe. Like, yeah, I, I can only imagine. But here's where I question. I question the casting of Ethan Hawke a little bit. And I told you. Maybe if we swap two characters in the roles, maybe it would be, be- it would be better. What if you swapped Jeremy Davies as the grabber and Ethan Hawke as the abusive dad? I feel like it would be too easy. But also Jeremy Davies isn't as stocky. He's like, like granted they're kids, so they're not hard to like take. But they're like preteens, especially like the kid in the beginning. He's like an adult. I think you could bulk him up a little bit. I don't think he needs to be like super beefy, but just enough to where... He has like some definition in his like. I think it would be too obvious though, because of course Jeremy Davies is going to be the kidnapper. Well, speaking of obvious, the that kind of fake out too. The revelation of Jeremy Davies as their dad when Finney's having breakfast and you just see someone behind the newspaper, and then the camera just kind of tilts up as he brings a newspaper dad, and there's that close up of his face. (laughs) I was like, oh, he's the bad guy. Yeah, he's he's. It's you him. know, it's him. That's yeah. going to be the big twist. I thought so, too, because he's acting kind of shady for a little bit. Right. And he's just like, what? But Why then I knew it was Ethan Hawke already. So I was like, I know, but 
Yeah. At first, I thought maybe th- this is the fake out. Maybe mm, okay, it's being sold as yeah. an Ethan Hawke movie and he's a bad guy, but the real bad guy. I mean, in a way, it kind of is. I guess. You know? Well, he's one of the bad guys. Yeah, he's one of the bad guys. Earlier when I was talking about uh, Maddie's, or not Maddie, the actress, Madeline Gwen's visions, I was talking about how they're filmed in like a Super 8 kind of, it looks like filming in Super 8, like they did in Sinister. Just like Sinister, how you can also tell this is like a Scott Derrickson production is there are a lot of dead kids that come back throughout the movie, like as ghosts that are meant to help Finny escape the clutches of the grabber. And I really liked that, but I was just like, man, these guys love their dead kids. Like they love dead kids. And that was one of the moments that was really cool to see in the theater is you have Finny kind of in this cell. He's been there for, you can't really tell, which is kind of cool. You can't really tell how long he's been in the cell for. It could be days or like weeks or whatever. And like earlier on, we're shown the black phone and it's just this phone that's on the wall that's not connected to anything because Ethan Hawke's character says that it hasn't been connected since he was a kid, which had me being like, what happened to Ethan Hawke as a kid? Like A lot of <laughs> crazy shit. So there's this black phone. It's not connected. And Finney starts hearing it ring. And he's like, phone's not connected. So he answers it. No one picks up, hangs it up. And then it rings again. And then it rings and it like keeps ringing. It doesn't like stop. It just kind of goes, and like keeps ringing. He answers it. And someone's on the, someone answers. It's like the voice of a kid. And I don't remember what he says to him. But the camera like pans suddenly. And you see one of the kids that disappeared. And he has like a gash on his face. And it's like pretty close to the camera. And there's a lot. Yeah, of course. A jump scare. Hate it. And I love that in the theater because everyone was just like, like even I was just like, oh my God. That was the biggest jump I had in the whole movie. Yeah. And unfortunately, that scare is completely ruined in the trailer. They show it in the trailer. And not only do they show that one, but to me, the second great jump scare is when later on in the movie, Gwen's riding on the bike when Mm -hmm. they're getting closer to finding where her brother is being held captive. She's riding the bike and then she sees the vision of all the other kids, boys that have been kidnapped. And it's another one of those like flashes yeah. with a really sound, hard sound hit. That was another like hard scare. And that's, that's also, also in legit. the trailer. So you're ruining two of the best. It's like the only two jump scares in the whole movie pretty much. Yeah. And you're ruining them in the trailer. Going back to the whole him in the basement, we were talking about how if that like got old pretty quickly. I think, yeah, that tr- like you start figuring out because you realize that it's all of Ethan Hawke's victims trying to help Finney. And you also realize Finney has that power too. Finney has a power, you know, Mm -hmm. not very similar to his sister. It does get a little bit cheesy when Robin, who was the, the bully killer that helped Finney out when he was still alive, when he's trying to train him, to, yeah, to, and he's it, like, it's like a very like rocky kind it's of. It's a karate kid, <laughs> yeah, karate kid type yeah. of deal, like right. wax on, wax off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I get, I get that, but it, it's a little on the cheese side for for my taste. Yeah, and adding on to that, before Robin, you have the other kids previously who had been killed by the grabber who are trying to ha- help Finny like get out. So the first one is like. There's like a cable up against the wall and you can use it to like bring the window down or something like that. There's another one where a kid says you have to dig behind this like tile to get to a meat fridge and get through the fridge. Which when I saw that, I was like, 
bro, are you kidding me right now? But also, okay, so watching this, you'd be like, why are these ghosts telling Finny all of these things that where he's just going to fail? Like one of them is there's like a lock on the window upstairs and the kid's like, it's my locker combination. And Finny's like, what is it? And he's like, I don't remember. I'm dead. And so he finds locker combination and he has to like silently go past the sleeping Ethan Hawk who's in the kitchen for whatever reason and like open this lock and he fails every time. And then you kind of figure out the reason why these kids keep giving him failing tips is because that's when they got caught and they died. So like the kid never knew that the meat locker wasn't going to work because he never made it to the actual meat fridge. The kid that tried to get the window open didn't know it didn't work because he never made it, you know? And so that when I thought about it that way, I was like, okay, well, that makes more sense. Speaking of that scene though, where he has to silently creep up the basement and then because it's a game that that the grabber's playing with Finney where you know the grabber's waiting he said he like leaves the door open yeah. slightly so he can try to escape and it's like part of the you know the cat and mouse chase that gets the grabber off or whatever and so one of the the victims tells him don't you better not get up there because basically he's gonna catch you and just beat the hell out of yeah. you and then you're gonna die um, but what do you think of that scene that we talked about in the trailer where Ethan Hawke is just sitting there? Well, the one in the trailer is the one the second time when he goes up to open the window with the lock. So he has like a cardigan on and he's shirtless. But the first one where he's completely is just like, I was like, oh, this is kind of gross because it like he doesn't go upstairs all the way. Finney doesn't. He just kind of peers out and the camera kind of follows up the stairs and then like spins around and it's just Ethan Hawke without his shirt on just like sitting on a chair with a mask and his gut is like out and he has like a belt and i'm just like oh this is dirty like felt gross i mean i thought that too but i also thought it that was another that moment that took me it was, was kind like, of funny at the same time because it's like it's Ethan Hawke shirtless <laughs> just trying to be like gross yeah but i really liked the build up to those scenes where you can really get your anxiety levels up and yeah. the way it builds to like the climax where he does get finally locked because you could see him in the background. There's like a split diopter kind of thing going on. Although it like what, kind of like it rack focuses. Yeah. But you can see Ethan Hawke blurry in the background, but you could see, you could see motion. So you could right. tell if Ethan Hawke is moving or if he's mm-hmm. not there anymore. And yeah, where he finally gets the lock open and then he just books it. And then, you know, Ethan Hawk wakes oh, because of the dog. Yeah. Right? The dog start, starts barking and he like books it. And then, you know, he gets in his black van and chases him down. And of course, the neighbors don't go out and, you know, check on their neighborhood, even though they not, know someone else that will there's do it. someone. Yeah. <laughs> even though they know that there's like someone what stealing is it? their the kids. Bystander effect. Yeah, exactly. I want to <laughs> segue into... One of my favorite characters in the movie, which would probably be me if this was happening in real time. The cops are like canvassing the area, the neighborhood, and they knock on this dude's door and you hear a dog barking in the background. He's like, hold on, hold on, I gotta get the dog away. And he, he answers the door and it's James Ransom, but he has like this like hideous 70s shirt on. Which, not to interrupt you, but is that the same shirt that Ethan Hawke goes down to the basement to visit Finney at one point? Oh, I don't know. I, didn't I, th- I think that was my the giveaway to me mm. because I realized, wait, wasn't Ethan Hawke's character wearing that when he went down? I'll have to I don't know. Again. So, so comment. <laughs> James Ransom answers the door as his name is Max. And they're kind of asking him about what's going on. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you guys are here. Come in, come in, come in. 
And then you see he has this like layout on his wall with like red string where he's like, okay, I figured it out. These kids got kidnapped here and here, which means the grabber has to have a house here and it has to have a garage and it has to have a basement. And he's just like completely talking and rambling. And the cops are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And like, I don't know what they ask him, but they kind of realize they figure he's like a dead end. So they kind of leave and they're like, thank you for your time. And they're like, also next time be sure to clean up before you have company. And then he looks down and his like coffee table. There's like racks of cocaine and he's just like, damn it. And so he like sits at the table and then he goes and he like does another line of cocaine, which I thought was so hilarious. He's only in the movie for like maybe five minutes total, but it was just like so, so funny. And I'm so glad they put that in there. Yeah. And I feel like it added some levity to another otherwise like very heavy movie yeah, it and added subject some matter and nice all that. comedy. But and I did not see that coming at all. I didn't either. I got kind of confused because right after this scene happens, so he does the line of coke and then the camera like pans down under and then it's the basement. And so I was like, is he in cahoots? Like, what is the deal? Or was this just a bad transition to a different scene? So like, I didn't really understand at first. And then they kind of mention that Max is the grabber's brother and they like live together. And I was just like, oh, fuck. Okay, I guess that's what it is. I figured that he had no idea and I feel like there was a tunnel or something where the grabber was like inadvertently putting them below that house and like oh, that okay. Max had no idea. Yeah. But I didn't think that they were related. I didn't think that, you know, that later on you find out that like they were brothers and all that. But I, I thought it was he was just like an innocent bystander mm-hmm. and had no relation to to the grabber. Jesus, what the fuck is probably my favorite line in the whole movie. Um, Gwen is desperate to have a dream where she can figure out where her brother is and and have a vision of of to to see to get the grabber and, and find her brother. And I think out of frustration, I don't remember the exact scene that leads up to it, but there's a moment where she just kind of like looks up and like says like Jesus, what the fuck? And she's holding a cross because she's been praying, you know, over and over again to to get it but just to hear that out of like i don't know how old she is like <laughs> nine or eight years yeah. old um was like super hilarious and funny and it got like a great uh crowd reaction mm-hmm. going back to how you talked about how you know the victims ghosts are giving finney's tips and it's basically them trying to escape but failing what i liked is how even though finney didn't get anywhere he has to combine all those ideas and figure out for himself because Robin is the last ghost that comes to him and basically says, I'm here. This is the last time you're going to hear from any of us. And now you have to figure out on your own. Right. And so I like that little kind of mini montage where he's like grabbing the, the cable and like setting up very like home alone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Getting these traps set up for the grabber. And then even before that, Max finally, the grabber's brother figures it figures it out because he looks at a map and he notices it just the neighborhood's getting narrow narrower and narrower and then he realizes wait a minute like my house is literally like in the <laughs> yeah. center of that map he's like oh fuck and meanwhile finney's under the basement getting everything ready and so he goes to this door that's never been open and he's like please no please no and he <laughs> grabs the door and he basically opens it And then he sees that it leads to a fucking basement. He goes down the steps and then Finney's finishing setting everything up. And Max goes down there and he's like, oh my God. And Finney sees him (laughs) and he's like, 
dude, I can't believe this. Like, <laughs> it's like right below. He's like, wait, wait, let me tell you how I figured this out. Yeah. <laughs> and right as he's about to explain, comes down Ethan Hawks with a fucking axe and like blows him over the head. And then he just fucking tips over. Once Max is dead, rest in peace. Ethan Hawke and Finney just kind of go at it, basically. And Finney has a phone. He takes the black phone earlier on because Robin helps him out with it. And he, fill, he like packs it with dirt so it has weight to it, which I don't know how much heavier that would make it, but yeah. whatever. He starts beating Ethan Hawke up a little bit, but Ethan Hawke still kind of manages to grab him and they kind of tussle around a little bit. And Finney leads him to like one of the traps he set up, which is like he's dug this like hole like a trench in the ground with I think like the cable as like a little like tripping trip thing him. so Ethan Hawke goes chasing after Finney and like he trips on the cable and like lands in the hole and like breaks his ankle and like this it's either his ankle or his shin but it's it's pretty graphic when it happens yeah the sound was pretty great yeah and he ends up on he ends up in the hole and then so this is where Finn can kind of really wail on him and the grabber's still trying to get at Finn he's still trying to claw at him and Finney ends up wrapping the phone cord or whatever phone cord it was around the grabber's neck and ends up basically strangling him to death. What I really loved about that is that it wasn't just a straight up kill, but as, you know, Ethan Hawke's character is about to die, he starts hearing the voices of his other victims right. and basically saying, once you get into the afterlife or wherever you go after you die, this is just the beginning of <laughs> us torturing you. you yeah. Know? Uh, I fucking love that part. Yeah, that yeah. was really great. What did you think of just how the film resolutes itself and just the ending? I like the ending because you don't have resolution between the family, really. Like, I know it was mentioned in the Q&A and we talked about it a little bit after that. So the Finney's rescued and he reunites with Gwen, who they hadn't been together since like the beginning of the movie. And their dad, Jeremy Davies, comes up and is kind of just like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. And they're in the back of the ambulance. And their dad just kind of like drops to his knees and just says, I'm sorry, but the kids never really say, okay. Or like they never say anything really. They just kind of like look down at him and that's kind of how it ends. Like it's just the camera just kind of goes back and you just see them at the ambulance. And I like that there was no resolution. It was just kind of like, well, now Finney's safe. So now we have to face all this other shit that was going on before he disappeared. I think if it would have been a like group hug and like, oh, everything's forgiven, everything's wrapped up in a mm -hmm. nice kind of bow, it would have negated everything that Finney and Gwen had been through. And so the idea that, yes, Ethan Hawke was like the big monster in the movie, but their dad's also a monster. And you don't know if he's really being sincere of saying like, forgive me, like I'm going to be better from now on. That look that they have that Gwen and Finney have where it's like, where we have to stick together because we have to still deal with the monster at home. Yeah. I thought it was super great. It's almost like a look where they're kind of like, we've heard this before. Like this has already happened. Right. All the things that Finney went through sort of prepared him for dealing with not only the bullies at the school, but the bully that they have at home, which is their dad. And so you're hopeful that their dad has seen the light and, you know, you know, maybe learned a lesson with his son being missing and didn't know if he was dead or not, that maybe he would change. At the same time, you can't expect that, you know. Yeah. And I feel like Finney and Gwen are better equipped to deal with the monster at home because exactly. they've already dealt with, you know, the monster that was running around killing kids. And Derrickson during the Q&A really brought up the idea that this movie came out of 
his trauma as a kid. He talked about how he was in deep therapy when he started getting the idea to write this movie because it sounds like he, his dad was abusive as well. And, and his life growing up wasn't, was filled with bullies and, and was very mirroring into Finney's life. So I feel like he drew a lot of this movie from his actual childhood and that it wasn't that great. And he had, you know, not the greatest parents and, and sort of funneled all that frustration and, and anger into, into these characters and, and making this movie. Yeah. And also it should be mentioned that this isn't an original story. It's a Joe Hill short story. So Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, it's his short story, but I believe a lot of what surrounds the main, cause I think Joe Hill's story just kind of starts with the kidnappings. The first third of the movie, I think Carhill and Derrickson wrote themselves. Which is a really good setup. I, to me, I was telling you after the movie. Yeah. I think my favorite part was the setup to the, the mm-hmm. whole story. Because I think Stephen King's son starts with just the kidnapping yeah. of, of Finney. Right. right and away. I think it's just one ghost as opposed to all of the kids. So there's a lot. There's definitely a lot in there that's Derrickson and Carhill that added in from Joe Hill's original story. But like the bones of it are the Joe Hill short story. As we wrap up this review on uh, The Black Phone, what are your final thoughts on this film? I think it's really great. I think you should go into it. Again, don't expect to see a horror movie because it's not, it's pretty like scary, but it's not going to be like a slasher or even like a sinister type, like murdery type story. It's more like a thriller, psychological thriller. Um, and it's really about just kind of growing up and the traumas of being a kid, I guess. So I really enjoy that. It's a lot more, it seems a lot more grounded in reality than most other horror. And I think that's what makes it scarier is that it's something that can actually happen minus, you know, like the ghost or whatever, but <laughs> the, the, the true part of the story is something very real. I really like horror movies or thrillers that really have this secondary story to them. Like with this one, we talked about that it's, trauma-based and really to me it's men not dealing well with trauma because you have you know Jeremy Davies's character that had a wife that would see these things and he basically ignored them and told her that she was crazy and ends up killing herself and then you have Ethan Hawke's character who was through some trauma as a kid because he talks about he was in that basement that same basement as Finney and the phone rang and who knows what else happened to him And rather than choosing to get help and to sort of, you know, work through that trauma, they end up taking out on other people. And that's like the worst case scenario. So to me, it's all about that. It's about, you know, these dudes that could have chosen to go left, but they ended up going right and taking out on these kids and these kids being better than them and choosing that path of, you know, we have abusive parents and we have this dude that's been killing kids. And we've been through this all together, but we're going to choose to have a better life and and be stronger for it. So I I really love that message of the movie. And even though there is supernatural elements to it, but it supports that core idea that, you know, this is a film about people dealing with trauma and how they're going to react and how they're going to face it uh, for the future. This concludes our review on The Black Phone. Again, we really enjoy this movie. I highly recommend it. Um, It should come out in theaters February 4th. So again, we're going to post this the week of, so definitely check out the movie. And again, if you're afraid of spoilers, don't listen to it or listen to the first half of it and then come back and listen to what we thought of it. And we love to hear 
what you guys think of it. So comment again. We're on YouTube. Just search Cut Movie Pod and you should be able to find us as well as social media, Instagram, Twitter, at Cut Movie Pod, where we post teasers and what we're up to. We want to thank every one of you for listening and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Cut. That's a wrap. Cut.